0: And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us today. We have an author with his uh, latest book on our program today. His name is Michael Hampton, and we're going to be talking with him about his new novel. It's called Dream Kids, and this is a novel that is about everything we remember growing up as teenagers, including Uh, breaking the rules, navigating toxic social scenes, and trying to find our way in that awkward transition that we make, that all of us have made, uh, and are making, depending on uh, who you know and who you're associated with, into mature adults. And so I'm so glad to welcome uh, Michael to the uh, program today, and he is the author of five books. His criticism, essays, fiction, and poetry have appeared in numerous publications, such as the Southeast Review, Fiction Southeast, and Rust and Moth. His work has won an Individual Excellence Award from the OAC and has been nominated for Best American Short Stories. His writing has also been named a finalist or semi-finalist for other awards such as the Iowa Short Fiction Prize and the World's Best Short Story Contest. And so it is my pleasure to welcome Mike Hampton to our program today uh, to talk to us about his new book, Dream Kids. So Mike, welcome to the program. Good to have you here with us today.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much.
0: I wanted to ask you first about the dedication at the beginning of the book because I think this sets up everything that is to follow uh, in the pages that come and in the story that comes and you write in your dedication that this book Dream Kids is dedicated to all the 80s teen movies and punk rock that informed my youth they remain ever present flames. Mm -hmm. So what did you mean by that and what movies and punk rock from the 80s uh, sort of simmer beneath the surface and uh, inspire you to write and to create?
1: Well, I think if we're looking at writers who in some way most influenced this work, my work, um, I I really was inspired by John Hughes. Um, In fact, uh, the protagonist's uh, name in this is a a nod to John Hughes, you know? Um, 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast Club. Uh, with its kind of like exploration of, of archetypes and, and like how those uh, kind of uh, slowly disintegrate over time and uh, interaction. Uh, so he, the, those were uh, incredibly uh, influential and uh, things that, I mean, if, if 16 Candles is on, I'll still watch it. You know, I can't, I can't not. Uh, and um also uh you know in terms of punk rock uh, i tend to like at least in more often than not in my books i i kind of have a a musical thread that goes with the writing um and if you you know I, as you read this book um bryce is taking uh, one of the classes he's given as an elective it's kind of like a history of punk class that teaches him um uh, nothing and everything at the same time. Uh, like so many of the other kind of uh, constructs he, he encounters at the Dream Academy, uh, he's not clear what he's supposed to be learning or why he's doing it. And I think that that's kind of like a, uh, a familiar refrain, uh, even in the most cl- clearly outlined classes when we're young you know, what's the point of this? Why am I doing this? Uh, this is maybe kind of like an exaggerated version of that. I mean, he's got like an absentee teacher and he's just told to, you know, given these really vague kind of like uh, suggestions uh, that uh, to, to kind of apply the music to his life and interpretation. Uh, so punk rock from, you know, kind of the, that 77 breakout year to like, maybe like mid eighties for the most part formed the basis of that soundtrack that kind of is name dropped and, 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 and plays throughout the the book. And um, I thought it was important because for two reasons, first of all, you know, as it, music's never more important to you than it is when you're young. You'll always go back to the music of your youth. Um, everything uh in those those years is so immediate and so important and so uh um life or death you know and so meaningful and rich and 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 um there's there's this kind of bridge that you cross as you get older to where um rather than taking on these new uh experiences with new music you're kind of like Fitzgerald born back again into that uh times when that song came on and they you know of course there's the way that music becomes a benchmark for all these relationships we have in our lives and moments and times um and the second reason that I I I wanted to use it is that um it's kind of a tool to illustrate how um the school in the novel wants to connect with students, but is uh, inept in that they don't ever really talk to the students. Um, so they're giving them this kind of outdated model of wouldn't it be neat if this was something else for when we were there, but um, they're, they're really kind of, in a sense, programming to themselves. Uh, so the, the students are left with, um, without a voice, and without directions, but, uh, you know, this kind of soundtrack from another time that they're trying, that, you know, they're trying, or Bryce, I should say, is trying to apply, and and later it gets adopted by one of the other characters to, to a greater extent.
0: Absolutely, and you touched a little bit on Dream Academy, and I had the, I, I just laughed and shook my head, because uh, I this is such an interesting school that these students are going to, Uh, It's sort of this ritzy experimental high school. You touched on it a moment ago with with a curriculum that is just kind of, well, eh, it could be this, it could be that. Maybe you want to do this. Maybe you want to complete this assignment. Maybe you have nobody at all teaching the class. But one of the characters I really love that is involved in the school is the principal. And he kind of, to me, functions almost like a lobbyist in the fact that his primary concern is not necessarily instruction and if the kids are learning anything, but raising money. Uh, for this for this academy, can, can you talk about that? And, and, and you touched on it a moment ago, but the, the dichotomy that exists between the adults that are in these kids' lives, and we'll get into some of the characters in just a minute, but the adults that inhabit these kids' worlds, uh, and, and the reality of the kids themselves, well, what is going on here, and why are the why is there such a gap between uh, the adults, uh, not only the teachers at Dream Academy, but the the parents. Uh, that have these children that are just sort of running wild uh, all over the place. What's going on there? What's the, the chasm that exists there?
1: I think for me, and, and again, this, this book was written over years, and it just you know, went through dozens of drafts uh, and permutations. But essentially, um, subconsciously or consciously, the gap that exists is, beco- is between those who believe the branding the, the kind of marketing, the messaging of the school and those who kind of have a numbers on a spreadsheet. Uh, this is the product view of it. So you have teachers who are very much into this kind of like, yeah, let's, let's explore rather than uh, just kind of like provide rote, lectures and and like kind of detailed things let's put them in experiences let's help them grow uh organically without um, it, it almost is kind of like romantic period uh you know we don't want to ruin the children with our adulthood <laughs> you know we want to let them just kind of flourish on their own um, but then you know and you have the parents who believe in this oh it's it's, it's fresh and it's new and uh And it makes our children special because they go someplace others can't. And then the principal, the one that I I guess he's the character who like most stands out in this regard is um, on the opposite side. Um, He's the CEO. You know, he he is aware of the messaging, but it wouldn't matter what the messaging was. He has a function to fulfill and, um, you know, he, he looks at it as a product. And it's a divide that I think you can see in a lot of areas of life. There's a lot of colleges where the teachers really believe in this kind of like liberal arts education idea, you know, where we're going to bring students in and we're going to introduce them to the world and we're going to let them get uncomfortable ideas and let them find themselves. And then you have uh, administrators in those same institutions who in some cases are much more interested in going to the chamber of commerce and raising money because that's their function you know, and they can look at creative writing as, and I've heard it described as boutique courses. Like, oh, you know, like this is, this is uh, something we can throw on this art class or this poetry class that'll make students who are going to really be engineers or really going to be like, what have you uh, uh, want to come here. Um, and I, I think that that's the divide that you you see there. And, and, in a lot of ways, the teens who are are kind of have this like kind of fresh cynicism that we all have as teenagers. You know, uh, the ever the world's phony, like you see in Catching the Rye*, and you can go on and on and on through the traditions in uh, film and television, and and as well, um, don't know which side they fall on. And and I think over the course of the novel. Uh, Bryce kind of gets it's the first character that gets like a peek behind the curtain because he unintentionally becomes an un- important to the school in a way that he doesn't want to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think about Bryce a lot because because he occupies such a unique space in the story. Um, and you've touched on this. You know, This story is, is primarily from his perspective. Uh, his name is Bryce Hughes. He um uh, as we talked about, the, the adults in the book are just kind of checked out or off doing their own thing. And so uh, Bryce and his buddies, they, they attend these parties. They sort of fake assignments, fake their way through school. They ingest a lot of, of drugs that uh, Bryce provides after stealing them from his father. Um, and so Bryce is this really interesting kid because he is one of these, these rich, privileged ch- kids and children um, who kind of lacks the motivation to really take charge of his circumstances and change his outcome. Uh, but I like the fact that he knows that, and he frequently admits that in the story, and and you have him tell the reader that he knows he's not doing these things. Um, He seems to want to do better and wants to uh, uh, have a better life for himself, uh, but he's afraid to change. Can you talk a little bit about what it is that, that keeps him from wanting to do this, despite the fact that he knows deep down he needs to Uh, hang out with a better group of people and be more responsible and do things better. He won't quite take that step. What's keeping him from doing that?
1: Well, I think one of the things that I'm really attracted to in characters is um, what they don't know. You know, we, we talk about giving characters authorities as when we're instructing writing, right? Like make sure that if your character is a mechanic, they know what kind of wrench and they they're using millimeters and they're using all the right terminology because otherwise even if your readers don't know how a mechanic sees the world they'll recognize if it's fake if he says oh I got the big wrench and so I think for Bryce you know he's trying his best and I think throughout the book he's he tries to uh grow and to like kind of shepherd uh, to to the extent that he can he uh, but he, he doesn't see a lot of options uh, oftentimes and I think that that again is like uh, you know that that idea of uh, teenage on way that like you know kind of trapped in our circumstances and whenever I get out whenever I graduate man you know <laughs> that kind of attitude um, but he's trying and then in some ways, in the small ways that he does feel that he has like authority, even if it's just um, by virtue of age, like with his little brother, like he's pretty um, anti-drug, you know, and pretty, um, you know, just like disenchanted with the whole idea uh, uh, of it. Um, This is just kind of like, the way he sees his generation, their generation that's always been given, like, you know, medicines for this and medicines for that. Uh, it's much easier to talk to a stranger about your diagnoses than your uh, personal philosophies. You know, I have this, I have that. Oh, this is because I'm, a, you know, ADHD or I'm uh, clinically depressed or what have you. And um, I mean, throughout uh, the novel, you know, we see him. Um, trying to grow in baby steps and i think that that's kind of maybe the most organic way that growth occurs not to get into this whole charles baxter against epiphanies kind of argument but you know, you know that the idea that we do a little better when we can yeah and that adds up over time
0: yeah absolutely excellent point and but because we're dealing with high school students in in this sort of supercharged environment and reality in, in which they are living and in which the actions take place, we have a love triangle, and, and it involves Bryce, and it involves uh, another girl named Paige, and then it involves a very interesting character who I really liked, J.C., and, uh, you know, JC is very much sort of the the foil character for Bryce in that, you know, she's uh, sort of an outcast. She's not as wealthy uh, as Bryce or the, or the other children, and yet she inhabits this orbit, mainly because of her relationship to Bryce or because she's connected to Bryce, and so she kind of gets accepted uh, by default uh for that but um it, it was really interesting that dynamic that exists between those three characters because they're all kind of similar and they all share some similar traits but they're also very different and, and this attraction what makes them all interested in one another is interesting can you talk a little bit about about that love triangle and 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 why why bryce despite the fact that he's still hung up on page kind of keeps jc around and 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 sort of indulges her and and connects with her, even though uh, she doesn't fit in with everybody else?
1: Well, I think that in some way he knows that J.C. will take care of them, that she that she truly cares. Um, Paige is, uh, it's not that Paige doesn't care, it's just that she's distant by design. Um, she's dismissive at times. Uh, she appreciates him when she needs him, I think. Um, but she's much more interested in um, novelty and in and, and, um, seeking, you know, I, I I don't, and I say this without thinking any of the characters are necessarily good or, or bad. You know, I don't think the pages is, uh, uh, you know, any way uh, like kind of, a, a, a villain in the story. I mean, they are they all care for each other deeply at different times in different ways when they're able to, but these are all people who are going through a lot of changes in their life. Uh, I think J.C. is probably like the most steady because in a way, even though she might go through like outward changes and things, and uh, um, she suffers most when she uh, tries to be something she's not, when she loses the self-awareness that kept her grounded through most of the story, um, she doesn't see herself maybe as a, as a work in progress as much as the others or
0: as in a state of, of kind of like flux. Very good. Yeah. We're speaking with author Michael Hampton here on this episode of Now Appalachia. His new book is called Dream Kids, and we're going to come back to the book uh, in just a minute. But, uh, uh, Mike, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, uh, about you and let our audience get a chance to get to know you a little bit better. I know that you said uh, earlier when we were talking that this book went through four or five drafts before it was. Oh,
1: I I wish in the,
0: (laughs) maybe more than that. Yeah. And so it it went through many evolutions over time. So let me ask you about, about your process. When you get an idea for a book and, and you sit down and start to, to create characters and the plot and the setting and all of that, how does that process work for you? What's your writing process like? Um, and, and how often does it really take you to get, you know, at least a first draft, at least everything sort of down on paper before you, you, you take it to the next step?
1: Um, it depends on the project. Uh, and I, I, I know that it depends as always, like, kind of the fallback answer to everything. Um, this book was strange um, in that it started off as a flash fiction, fiction piece. Um I'd written a 500 word story called The Kid on the Floor. And if you, you know, in the book, The Kid on the Floor, it becomes the first chapter and it becomes like a way of introducing all the characters with this great kind of like tragedy that they're somewhat aware of going on in, at the same time. Um, and uh, I had, this would have been like maybe, gosh, six or seven years ago and I had someone suggest hey you should go and see if you could because I I had written um, a chat book I'd written like five or six other of these flash fiction things maybe 20 pages or something and it was called bad kids from good schools and someone suggested I use that to go and try and get an agent as a perspective you know and I reached out to some agents and the one who got back to me said, uh, you know, I really can't sell this as a perspective. Like I have to have a book, like not just like this would be a good idea for something I could do. So I wrote a novel in the next 35 days or so, just, you know, banged one out. Um, The first draft was 125,000 words. um, And it was a good start. the the bones were there. But I will say that, you know, in the editing process, uh, it was just too um, expansive. It was almost polemic. You know, you had a lot of these characters, they all had their own kind of like start and end points and high and low points and everything like that. It wasn't as focused. It was more of a story of a group. Um, so between that draft and this draft, almost 50,000 words were cut. And uh, you also lost... Or I also should say I had to cut maybe four or five characters, uh, entire storylines, entire uh, some characters were combined, others were just kind of left out um, chapters. And then in uh, the next serious editing phase before I'm getting into like this last round of edits, uh, it became much more about uh, how do I focus, what, what's at the heart of this and how do I bring it uh, to light? and um you know and even in that sense every chapter has a has a name in this book like the kid on the floor the kids who changed things like that um in that draft in the draft of the novel that went to like simon and schuster and things like that the chapters didn't have names that that was put in that was something i wanted that the that my agents at the time didn't uh, they didn't want like kids and stories and things like that, you know, on chapter 10. So um, I was able when I um, published small press to have a, a, a little more um, control into that. And uh, I, I'm super happy with the way it came out, you know, as far as the, just the storytelling, the design, everything, that like the way it came together.
0: Yeah, it's a terrific book. And it, the cover is wonderful as well. Just a very eclectic, has that 80s high school vibe It's really, really great. And I think they did a great job with it. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned flash fiction and that this the impetus for this story kind of came from those flash fiction essays. You've written other books as well, but you've written a lot of criticism and essays and other short stories. How have those genres writing in those genres helped you as a novelist? in terms of writing, developing characters, developing storylines, how have those smaller pieces helped you um, when it comes to writing a novel, Uh, you know, something of 50, 60, 70, 120,000 words? How does those those other genre pieces that you've done and and experience with those helped you uh, writing novels?
1: When I approach a novel now, uh, I tend to have a rough outline in uh, where I have like kind of the beats, the things that I want to happen in each chapter, but I'm not married to it at all. Uh, I don't really even feel like uh, bound to follow it after the first maybe chapter or two, you know, when I get on its feet. Um, writing in other genres, though, um, helps you in different ways. Uh, for example, when I taught creative writing or when I teach creative writing, uh, I like to start with flash fiction because... In flash fiction, in 500 words, you know, two pages or so, something has to happen. And you don't have time for characters to think and feel and, and expand upon uh, their their kind of uh, histories and whatever. Something has to happen. And I think that that's a good tool because even in the first chapter of the book where we're really meeting the characters. We see them in this kind of, each character is always kind of in motion and they're always doing something. And in the background, there's a a real threat going on that they're not aware of, or they're not paying close enough attention to that they are kind of like just accepting in this kind of adolescent kind of, yeah, that kid's stupid kind of way. Um, So in flash fiction, you know, that, really kind of hammers home that things have to happen. Uh, Readers are much more interested in what characters do than what they say about themselves. You know, even even in a book where characters are going to be, uh, you know, almost necessarily in in, uh, necessity, you know, discussing their lives and and the way they see the world. Um, They still have to do that uh, in motion uh it's it's kind of like writing cinematically seeing the way it plays out in your head when you're writing it you know what are they doing are they doing something that's interesting too that's important and if not how can you add something to that Mm -hmm. um in terms of writing criticism i think it's interesting to look at how other writers have approached writing Um, we always encourage students i'm sure you have in the past that like, you know, like to, to, to steal liberally, you know, uh, things that we like from other works and uh, kind of repurpose them for our own. When I write poetry, um, there's a lot more emphasis on language um, and on rhythm. Um, And, uh, you know, that, that's really important, especially in terms of not only like kind of descriptive language, but, but dialogue too. Uh, I was discussing writing uh, with someone uh, this week and they asked uh, if I'd ever taken a theater class because, you know, when I was relating something I'd just kind of adopt it. It's like, no, but when you write, you kind of have to hear how characters uh, relate themselves and how they express themselves. And I think with a, a novel like this, uh, you know, you have to be kind of, aware of like the limits of, of where that is, you know, um, this, this novel is told, uh, first person. Um, so a lot of the restrictions that come from a storytelling standpoint is I can only relate what that character knows. And I have to make that character's voice, you know, unique enough and, um, compelling enough that you want to listen to it for that much time. You know, and there's been books that, you know, when I'm talking about criticism that I've read where I'm like, I just don't want to spend this much time with this person, you know, yeah. uh, and, and speaking of characters. So. Yeah, I think and everything I, ties into it.
0: And I, I imagine that's the challenge in writing first person. Uh, in a novel is is that you know, you as the writer will have to spend and want to spend uh, as much time with this character because you almost have to but you want the reader also to feel like mm, you know I want to follow this character all the way through and if I'm on this character's shoulder and watching everything unfold then this has to be somebody I'm vested in this has to be somebody I'm interested in and that is is complex and, and uh, you know, jaded and mistake prone and has all of the infallibilities that we all have. And I imagine that's a challenging part of writing first person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you also but but in that you also have to make him someone worth caring about, not even if you don't root for him. You know, you have to have uh, in any kind of writing, you have to have like this strong emotional attachment. And, and I think a lot of that just comes from being honest, uh, you know, emotionally honest. Um, I think it tells students that, you know, you already know everything Shakespeare knew. You know what it feels like to be heartbroken, to be betrayed, to have uh, unrequited love, to uh, feel anger, fear, you know, uh, So if you write about whatever your experience is or whatever experiences you're interested in, honestly, um, the more personal you write, the more universal it becomes. It's when we try to write really broadly and universally that um, it becomes uh, cold, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: Very well said. Very well said. The title of the book we're talking about here today on now Appalachia is called dream kids. And our guest is author, uh, Michael Hampton and Michael, I wanted to go back to the book, uh, in the few remaining moments that we have uh, here together, I wanted to ask you a question about about the bonds of the, the bonds of the relationships of all of these characters. I and mean, we talked about three of them. Uh, Tyler's another character who uh, many times I wanted Bryce to just, you know, punch him in the nose because of the things that he said and the way that he acted. And, of course, as we've talked about, why Bryce would not do that. But, um, it, it, you know, what, you touch on so many social issues in this book and we've talked about you know the the pharmaceuticals that Bryce is getting from his dad and passing it around to the group which makes him kind of in their inner circle but you know one of the things you you really emphasize and we've touched on it here too today is is wealth is wealth is what gives these kids power um and and it allows them to do things and experience things and have things that uh maybe other kids their age couldn't or shouldn't have but I wanted to ask you uh, about the bonds that, that themselves and and if these characters if you feel like th- these characters and sort of creating them and writing them and as you tell this this great story all the way to the end and we won't spoil the ending for the readers but um is their bond more than just the money and more than just the parties and more than just what one of them can do for someone else or what one can do for the whole group is sort of a transactionary situation uh, is it all connected to that or are there real bonds here because i feel like that that is something that the, this age group of of, of, of kids uh, and you and I being professors work with these this age group a lot sort of on the, the older side of it but you know they struggle with with meaningful connections and relationships and I was wondering if if you feel like there's real bonds here that connect these characters together or is it just sort of circumstantial that if you took these characters away from one another uh, took two of them and put them in some another school or another town over would they ever connect or interact your, your thoughts on that and was that something that played into your mind as you were setting them up and, and how they relate and interact with each other.
1: Well, I, you know, there, 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 certainly are true bonds. We're, we're social primates. Uh, lone wolves die. Um, I, I think that they care about each other uh, and uh, they frustrate each other. They betray each other. They support each other. They, all those kind of things. But these are people who like all of us in the time of our lives, you know, they're, they're learning how relationships work. They're learning to socialize, and the, and also they're in a very kind of fabricated situation. You know, like uh, they're they're in the situation where they're at an experimental high school, and they're that, that gives them recognition. But really, their parents get to enjoy the, the 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 good side of that recognition, and they kind of get the bad side of it. Um, the fact that they're wealthy gives them access to maybe you know like uh tyler has access to like the country club where his dad's a member and stuff but he's not really respected by the members there you know and and we kind of see a real kind of uh change in 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 the way that he's received by them when his station changes for uh, briefly so a lot of the things that we would assume about them um are the things that they're kind of fighting against in the novel i mean even in the last paragraph you know like this idea that they think we're dream kids they think we're rich you know like um and they and they don't feel that way about themselves the question of whether any of them would uh keep in contact were they put into different situations because we we get to kind of see this coming potential for a parting of the ways um yeah the ones that really cared would The ones who really, truly care, um, they stay in touch, you know, they stay in your lives and that's that matters.
0: So, Mike, as, as we finish up uh, on this uh, episode today, and I wish we had more time to, sit, to talk more because there's so many other layers of your story I'd love to talk about, but we're running short on time. But as we finish up here on this episode, if anyone wants to get in contact with you uh, to talk to you about your writing, to talk to you about Dream Kids or any of the other work that you've done, uh, how can they get in contact with you and where can they find you? And then where can they get copies of Dream Kids?
1: Okay, Uh First and foremost, I guess most importantly, if you wanna buy the book, <laughs> Dream Kids, uh, it's Dream Kids, uh, Michael Wayne Hampton, and you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, it has nationwide distribution to, through Ingram. So anywhere books are sold, you can go to your local bookstore and say, hey, I'd like, like this. Um, to get in touch with me, uh, the easiest way is to go to Michael Wayne Hampton .com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-Y-N-E-H-A-M-P-T-O-N.com. Um, and all my social media there, all my links to, to books, to previously published work, whatever I'm doing, that kind of stuff.
0: His latest book is called Dream Kids. His name is Michael Hampton. He is the author of this terrific new book. And also the author of other books, as well as criticism, essays, fiction, and poetry that have appeared in uh, numerous publications. And his new book, uh, Dream Kids, is a story about alienation. It's about uh, a group of characters trying to find uh, their acceptance, trying to fit in. Uh, into this world um, uh, of being young adults and uh, trying to disca- discover and decide how the relationships and friendships and everything is going to work. It's a terrific book, a uh, great set of characters that you're going to fall in love with and that you're going to think about long after the last page is concluded. So Mike, congratulations to you on the book. It was great to have you on the program today. and We appreciate the conversation.
1: Well, thanks so much. I've, I've had a great time and I really appreciate the invitation. I hope everyone who reads it uh, enjoys it.
0: We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and also the executive producer of this podcast, Now Appalachia. Her name is Pam Stack, and we appreciate all the work that she does to make these podcasts possible for you each and every episode, as well as all of the podcasts that you tune into on the network. We couldn't do it without her, and we appreciate her support and assistance. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network that is going to do it for us this time on now appalachia but please come again next time and in the meantime stay well and see you someplace soon i hope To Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network for questions or comments about this program. And to learn more about the host Elliot Parker and his books visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the air global radio network.